Hello and welcome to Coco Pods, a podcast of the Birth Center for Natural Deliveries Foundation, where we talk about all the issues that relate to maternal morbidity and mortality. We are recording from the rural city of Forsyth, Georgia. My name is Dr. Bola Sogadi. I'm a board certified obstetrician gynecologist, a family physician, a minimally invasive gynecologic robotic surgeon, and a proponent for natural childbirths. We are fortunate to have with us today Dr. Carly Ebanks. He is a gastroenterologist that has been practicing in the Middle Georgia area for several years. Thank you, Dr. Ebanks, for coming to our podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Bola. I'm happy to be here. Now, we want to talk about some of the gastrointestinal issues that affect pregnant women with an emphasis on minority or low-resource women. And one of the things that comes to mind so easily is the nausea and vomiting of pregnancy. We know that we see this most of the time before nine weeks of pregnancy, but and we manage these conditions as OBGYNs. But there are times when it becomes so severe, it becomes a condition called hyperemesis gravidarum. And we have to just call the gastroenterologist specialist in to help us with the management of this patient. Can you tell us when you come in and what you do when you come in as a GI specialist? Uh, thank you, Bola. Yes, when we do see those patients in the hospital, when it's severe, when their symptoms are severe enough for hospitalization, one of the first thing that we try to do is to make sure that there's not another underlying process that's going on that's causing the excessive nausea and vomiting. Something as simple as gallbladder disease or gallstones, mm. acute hepatitis, pancreatitis, mm. peptic ulcer disease, mm. gastroenteritis or gastritis. So there are several things that can mimic mm. a hyperemesis. Mm. However, when the patient is in the hospital for hyperemesis, at that point, their electrolytes are usually out of balance in their body, and they usually require IV hydration. Sometimes elect their electrolytes need to be repleted, and sometimes their symptoms can even be so severe that we have to feed them, give them IV food, or even put a feeding tube uh, in their intestinal tract to feed them that way. The thing that we worry about with hyperemesis is if the uh, mother is not, it doesn't have enough uh, nutrition, is not getting all their nutritional things that they need from eating, mm. then that can affect the fetus and mm. that can affect the baby. Mm. And so we have to make sure that their uh, nutritional status is up to par mm. so that the baby can grow and grow uh, in, in an appropriate mm-hmm. way for their level of pregnancy. Wow. Thank you so much for that. So some of the things that can mimic nausea, vomiting, in pregnancy that is not just pregnancy related, you said could be something like peptic ulcer disease, which we know as ulcer, you know, just know as having an ulcer. How would we differentiate that? You know, what, what are the, what are some of the features that that condition will show, especially in pregnancy so that we, we're thinking along those lines other than just saying that this is just the nausea and vomiting of pregnancy. Correct. Well, we often look at lab work. The patient will have a blood test while they're in the hospital, and that can sometimes lead us into the direction of if there's another problem other than just a simple hyperemesis. If they're anemic, if they show signs of GI bleeding, we may have to do x-rays or actually look inside their stomach to make sure that they don't have a bleeding ulcer. If the blood work reveals some liver abnormalities, we may have to do x-rays to rule out 
gallstones and gallbladder disease. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the blood abnormalities could lead us to looking for hepatitis, mm-hmm. uh, which is very common during pregnancy and something that we don't want to miss because certain types of hepatitis can actually affect the mother as well as the baby mm-hmm. when they're born. Mm-hmm. So lab work, x-ray studies, ultrasound studies are always helpful while the patient is hospitalized to rule out other things other than just plain old hyperemesis. Yes. And then you talk about ultrasound studies. So gallbladder disease can become more common in pregnancy. And some of the women, they have pain in the right side of their upper abdomen. And ultrasound is a safer procedure to do in pregnancy to find some of these uh, stones. Can you maybe speak to like gallbladder disease? What symptoms should the woman be looking for? The typical symptoms, Mm. like you say, is Mm pain in the right side, right under the upper rib in the area of the liver and the gallbladder. Uh, the pain can sometimes radiate to the back or go all the way to the back under the shoulder blade. Uh, the patient will have sometimes loose stools and, of course, nausea, vomiting. They may uh, also have a problem with eating fatty foods or greasy foods. They may sometimes even have nausea with smelling certain kinds of foods. So those are the typical symptoms that we look for. But we confirm the gallbladder disease with the ultrasound, like you say, and some other tests that we can do. But yes, we do. We try not to do x-rays on uh, pregnant patients because of obviously the fetus, but sometimes we're forced to do it to confirm the diagnosis that we're looking for. Wow. And then for the nausea and vomiting, as we're excluding other conditions, what kind of treatments would you recommend? You know, as you know, if we've kind of excluded all the common conditions like peptic ulcer disease or gallbladder disease or hepatitis or maybe pancreatitis, and we think that this is just due to the nausea and vomiting of pregnancy. And we, as the obstetrician, we have managed on an outpatient basis by giving medications and encouraging oral hydration. And now they come into the hospital because it's so severe. You did speak to giving IV fluids and IV food. And you talked about at times putting in a feeding tube. And, you know, I just wanted to speak to that process. You know, we keep them in the hospital until the symptoms resolve, until they gain some weight. How do we decide that this has been adequate treatment for them? Sure. I think when the patient is hospitalized, if they quickly resolve the nausea and vomiting, we quickly resolves, mm. and we think that we can manage this problem as an outpatient, then we usually send them home with medicines for nausea in case the symptoms recurs. But uh, if the symptoms are recurrent, if they're not gaining adequate weight, again, if we're worried about the f- the fetal growth, mm. then we have to make a decision at that point. Do we need to keep them hospitalized mm. for IV fluids, IV feedings, mm. or even putting a feeding tube mm. into the intestinal tract? If we, again, if we think that this is going to be a long term thing and it has to be, and we're worried about fetal growth. Mm. Another condition in pregnancy is constipation. And women see this at times in early pregnancy. I know I, as an obstetrician, I tell them to hydrate, 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 increase fiber intake. But can you speak to this as a specialist in gastroenterology? What should, what should a woman do to battle constipation in pregnancy? Even in the general population, it's yeah. estimated that 80% of us are typically dehydrated because we just don't drink enough fluids. Mm. When you're pregnant, you're 
probably 100% of pregnant women are dehydrated. Typically, we'll tell a patient in my practice, if they're constipated, if they're not pregnant, they should eat a, drink at least eight glasses of water a day. When you're pregnant, you need 10 to 12 glasses of water because of the pregnancy. So hydration, hydration, hydration is the key. Again, eating more fiber, increasing your uh, dietary limits of fruits, vegetables, especially dried fruits. Mm. That's very helpful uh, with the constipation. Wow. And I know at times constipation can go ahead and lead to hemorrhoids, which is very common in pregnancy. And the hemorrhoids can be painful at times. And, you know, a lot of the pregnant women, this is a big thing that we see in pregnancy, these hemorrhoids. Can you speak to how this can be diagnosed or managed in pregnancy? Sure. I think most people know the hemorrhoids are painful, look like groats, but little grape-like things at, at the anus. Typically, it's because patients are constipated while they get the hemorrhoids. What I typically tell patients for hemorrhoids are to try over-the-counter things like witch hazel, tux, preparation H, and most people can be treated adequately with over-the-counter medications. Again, like I, I want to emphasize fiber and uh, increasing hydration, increasing fluid intake. If the hemorrhoids are really bad, if they're bleeding, if they're causing a tremendous amount of pain, now sometimes we actually do a procedure called banding where we put rubber bands on the hemorrhoids and they'll, they'll fall off eventually. Again, we try to avoid surgery in pregnant patients, so we would probably not recommend surgery but uh, if the hemorrhoids are bad enough and they're, uh, they're not responding to the adequate medical therapy, then banding may be a way to go to give the patient some relief. And then after uh, pregnancy, if the, of course, the pregnant uterus pushing down on the veins that is causing the, once the baby is delivered, the hemorrhoids should get better. But if in the postpartum period, after a period of time, uh, has passed and the hemorrhoids are still bare and they are causing problems. Is that when you would recommend surgery or is there are there more things you would do from a gastrointestinal point of view? Yes, that may be the time for surgery. Again, I would still try medical therapy because uh, 90% of patients with hemorrhoids can be well controlled with medical therapy and surgery is surgery. You don't want to tell a patient to go to surgery unless it's absolutely indicated. So I would still try medical therapy first. Uh, if the medical therapy does not abate the symptoms, then the next thing would be uh, uh, to do the banding. And uh, if banding doesn't work, then traditional hemorrhoidal surgery. Wow. Another thing that uh, affects women a lot in pregnancy is reflux disease. They have acid reflux. And there are all kinds of myths surrounding what causes acid reflux at times. They say you're having a boy or you're having a girl. But what are some of the reasons that a pregnant woman would have an increased incidence of acid reflux in pregnancy? And what are some of the things they can do to mitigate the symptoms? Uh, good question. Part of the reason that pregnant women have more acid reflux, one is just simply that the uterus is pushing up on the stomach. When you eat, your stomach produces acid. And if the acid cannot adequately go down in the intestinal tract, it wants to come back up in the esophagus, and that's, that's what acid reflux is. There are also hormonal reasons. Uh, there's a change in the hormones when you're pregnant, and that, act, that can actually increase the uh, production of acid in the stomach, which can cause acid reflux. Typically what we do, we try not to give patients 
systemic medications, uh, meaning medication that goes throughout the entire body and can then go to the fetus. So we'll give them, lo- we'll start off with local treatment antacids. Uh, there's a medication called caraphate that stays in the stomach and coats the lining of the stomach and help with acid reflux. That's how we actually start off first. But if the reflux is bad enough, they may have to take the typical uh, medicines that you may hear about on the radio, like Zantac or Nexium or Pepsid, to help to control the acid reflux. Now, is there a place for eating small amounts of food each, each time? Absolutely. Lifestyle changes. That's the usually before we even go to medicines. We tell patients to eat small meals frequently, stay away from caffeinated foods, carbonated foods, don't lay down right after eating. Give your stomach time to empty so that the acid that your stomach produces when you eat will be out of your stomach when you go to lay down. Wow, that's so important. There's another thing that women talk to me about, like this spitting in pregnancy. And I think uh, that is called tialism. And it is just especially in early pregnancy, but I've seen patients, you know, carry a cup with them the whole pregnancy because they just keep spitting. Can you speak any to that in pregnancy? I don't think the the direct cause of that is known. It's Mm. just an observation that's made. Sometimes those patients will actually uh, respond to reflux uh, treatment. Sometimes they'll respond to antiemetics. The main thing is if they're spitting a lot, you have to make sure that they keep hydrated. So Mm dehydration does not become a problem later on. Wow. Now, thank you so much. How about, you know, when we have, when in rural Forsyth, Georgia, some of the women might not have access to a gastroenterologist. Their insurance might not cover seeing a gastroenterologist. What resources can you point low-income, low-resource women to and possibly minority women to when they have some of these problems in pregnancy, what resources are available to them if they cannot access subspecialty care like this? Unfortunately, I don't know of any particular resource for a problem like that if the patient's primary care physician and their obstetrician cannot handle the problem. In our practice, we're happy to see patients who are underinsured or not insured and will take uh, curbside consults, meaning that the primary care physician can call us with questions about problems that the patient is having or send the patient to us so we can see the patient. But uh, unfortunately, there's, uh, there's not a lot of resources for subspecialty care, such as gastroenterology care in this area. Wow. Dr. Ebanks, thank you so much. I want to ask you, every now and then, there's a woman that has delivered a, a, a good-sized baby, a large baby, and there has been some traumatic effect to the perineum, to the anal area, just down there. Yes. And at times, they go ahead and develop you know, some accidental bowel leakage. Can you speak to that, please? Sure, sure. Occasionally, we are asked to see patients who have this problem with bowel leakage. Mm-hmm. Yes, it can be due to a traumatic birth but also it could be due to other systemic uh, diseases, diabetes, thyroid disease, colitis, or inflammation of the colon. Mm -hmm. Typically what we do first is we assess the patient to make sure that there's not an underlying condition that uh, is not being cared for. Mm -hmm. If there isn't, and we think that this is because of muscle or nerve injury, then there are several testing that can be done to actually 
check the muscle and check the nerve to see if that is indeed the problem. And there could be some retraining exercises that we uh, often prescribe for the patient that can sometimes help with the bowel leakage. Of course, if that doesn't work, then there's some surgical intervention also, repairing of the sphincter or the so-called valve of the rectum that keeps the stool in the rectum. Or uh, sometimes there, there's a technique that uh, collagen can be injected around the anal canal to form a barrier to keep, uh, again, stool in the rectum to prevent that leakage. That can be a very embarrassing situation for patients. A woman don't want to be walking around with diapers because she's soiling herself. So that's a very uh, important and embarrassing problem that sometimes we see and uh, we take care of. Wow. Thank you so much. You know, another um, issue that comes to mind is also hepatitis. You know, uh, that is something that is serious in pregnancy and we recognize immunization for the newborn. Can you speak to, you know, hepatitis in pregnancy you know, how we make the diagnosis and things that we can do for the mom and the newborn? Sure, sure. There are several different types of hepatitis. or uh, uh, Hepatitis simply just means uh, it's the name of a virus that affects the liver mostly. Now we have hepatitis A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, and I think they're uh, even up to hepatitis H now. The main hepatitis virus that we worry about in pregnancy is hepatitis B. It's now recommended that all pregnant women be screened at the time of their pregnancy diagnosis for hepatitis B. And the main reason for that is that the mother can actually transfer the hepatitis B infection from herself to the, the baby when the baby is born. There are criteria that we look at to decide if the mother should be treated while she is pregnant. If it's necessary, the mother needs to be treated in the third trimester of pregnancy if she has active infection and the baby will be vaccinated when born uh, against the hepatitis B uh, virus to prevent chronic hepatitis B infection in the baby. Wow, that is so comprehensive. One of the sequelae of hepatitis can be liver cirrhosis. Yes. And you know nowadays, women that have had liver cirrhosis are getting pregnant. So can you speak to some of the other causes, some of the causes of liver cirrhosis? And then when a woman with liver cirrhosis gets pregnant, what are some of the things that should be done from a GI point of view? Sure, sure. This is a this is an excellent topic to, to speak about. In the past, uh, women with cirrhosis, a very low percentage of those women uh, were getting pregnant. Now, because of good medical therapy, we're seeing uh, an increased percentage of women with cirrhosis who are getting pregnant. Uh, some of the causes of cirrhosis, like you said, uh, hepatitis, viral hepatitis, alcohol use, and what we call a fatty liver or obesity. Now, uh, unfortunately, our population, obesity is rising in the population, and that's one of the main causes of cirrhosis. It is very important that when the obstetrician see a patient who is pregnant and who thinks has cirrhosis, get a GI consultation because there are several things that we need to do. We need to look in the patient's esophagus, do what we call an endoscopy to make sure that the patient doesn't have abnormal veins that can bleed uh, throughout the pregnancy and during delivery. And there are some other things that we need to do, other testing that we need to do to make sure that, that the pregnancy goes well and there's not a problem with the baby there you know, after delivery. If you 
scope the patient and you find abnormal veins that are dilated and enlarged in a pregnant woman who has liver cirrhosis, what is the next step? That sounds like a very scary situation. Absolutely, absolutely. We make an assessment at the time when we look at these veins, these abnormal veins, to decide if we need to do something about them. We need to do banding or we need to put the patient on medicines to prevent any bleeding from happening. And also, we may even make a recommendation that the patient get a cesarean section instead of a normal vaginal delivery, because during a normal vaginal delivery, there's a lot of pressure that goes on those veins that may rupture and cause even bleeding during the delivery process. Wow. Well, thank you. Dr. Ebanks, you know, in pregnancy, women could have abdominal pain. And once we as obstetricians have excluded the causes of the abdominal pain as, you know, it's not contractions and we've looked at the more common things like, you know, it's not peptic ulcer, it could still be a stone in the gallbladder. And a stone in the gallbladder could just sit in the gallbladder or it could try to migrate from the gallbladder to the pancreas through, I think that's called the channels like the common bowel duct. So, number one, how would you make that diagnosis? You know, if the woman just keeps having pain and we've excluded other things, how how would that diagnosis be made and how would you treat in pregnancy? That's a very good question because that's something that we often see. Uh, Again, you mentioned before, gallstone uh, diseases increase during pregnancy because of a variety of reasons. And sometimes we do see when a patient uh, uh, has a gallstone or multiple gallstones that leaves the gallbladder and is and lands in the common bile duct, it can cause severe pain. It can cause jaundice, which is yellowing of the skin, yellowing of the eyes. The way that we typically make that diagnosis is, number one, blood work. We look at the blood test, and we'll expect to see the liver test elevated and the amount of bile in the blood elevated again because that stone is blocking the outflow of bile from the gallbladder and the liver. And oftentimes we'll do x-ray tests like an ultrasound or an MRI to confirm the diagnosis. If that is indeed the problem, that is something that has to be dealt with immediately because if the stone stays in the common bile duct and obstructs the bile duct, then it can cause infection. And the infection can, can go from the bowels into the bile ducts, into the liver, into the blood, and of course, that's not good news. The procedure that we that the patient often needs to have, which is quite okay to be done in a pregnant woman, is a procedure that's called an ERCP, and I'm not going to tell you what, uh, what ERCP stands for, but pretty much what we do is go down into the stomach, into the small intestines, into the opening of the bile ducts. We have a lot of different instruments that we can snake up into that bile duct and grab the stone, crush the stone, remove the stone, and relieve the obstruction. If deemed necessary, the patient uh, after that procedure can still go to have their gallbladder removed. If the gallbladder is inflamed and if they're still in pain, and we think that that's going to be a problem later, further on in the pregnancy. So that's a common thing that we see during pregnancy and something that we can, uh, not easily, but we can take care of safely during the pregnancy. Now, would you put the woman under general anesthesia to do this procedure? I mean, thinking about the baby, would you do it in a particular time of pregnancy? Unfortunately, it has to be done pretty much the time that the problem is happening. We try to avoid general anesthesia if we can. Now, if the patient needs to have their gallbladder removed, then they will have to undergo general anesthesia. 
but for the procedure, the ERCP procedure to remove the stone from the bile duct. We try to do that under what we call conscious sedation, which is not general anesthesia and is much less risk for the mother and, and the fetus. Wow. Wow. Thank you. And, and that brings me to the point that women get pregnant and a lot of women are getting pregnant later in life. So they have just had an opportunity to have other gastrointestinal pre-existing gastrointestinal problems, you know, before they get pregnant. Can you speak to some of the GI problems that a woman might have in in her life before she got pregnant that might continue through the pregnancy? Absolutely. We talked a little bit before about hepatitis. Mm. Most pregnant women who are diagnosed with hepatitis, this is something that they had before they became pregnant. And that's very important to make that diagnosis. They might have been totally asymptomatic before pregnancy, and that's the reason that we recommend screening all pregnant women for hepatitis, especially hepatitis B. Mm. But some of the other things that we often see is uh, colitis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, inflammation of the bowels, which can occur and can actually get worse during pregnancy. The statistics actually say that about a third of women with colitis will get better during their pregnancy, believe it or not, mm-hmm. a third will stay the same and a third will, uh, their symptoms would worsen. If needs be, we can actually do procedures that we normally do on anyone who's not pregnant safely. We can look in the bowels to detect if the uh, inflammation is getting worse and if we need to adjust the treatment based on the symptoms and uh, how the bowels look at that time. Wow. So this is something definitely when the patient presents to the obstetrician gynecologist, she needs to let us know this and the OBGYN will work with, in conjunction with her uh, primary care and her GI doctor prior to going into the pregnancy. Absolutely, absolutely. There's nothing to substitute a good medical history. And again, because of some of the good medicines and uh, good care that's occurring and breakthroughs in, uh, with certain diseases, patients who have chronic diseases now are healthy enough to get pregnant. And so we can't forget about those chronic diseases during pregnancy, and we just have to deal with it and uh, uh, the best that we can. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ebanks, for coming to our, our podcast. Thank you for the way you've contributed to just knowledge for pregnant women, and um, we thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me.